John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 258.JE4606, certificate number 36689, Concord Ski. Uh, how long has it been since I did a show on uh, the Soviet Union? <sighs> well, they're kind of all about... right. They're kind of all about your so Soviet nostalgia. How about uh, an airplane? How about the last time I did a show on an airplane? I think it's quite possible the last airplane entry was mine. We don't know what people are. Um, oh, that's right. We don't know what people, what order people are listening these to. No, no, Lost Bur Spitfires of Burma. Oh, that wasn't that long ago. No, a mere eighteen entries ago. Well, I mean, I hate to be so on brand, but I did feel like it had been a long time. Perhaps I've never done a show on a Soviet airplane. Is that true? Can you think of one? Not solely on, I mean, they may have come up. Yeah. But you're right. We've done a lot of fighter plane shows, and I don't think any of them were MiGs or similar. You know, you want to think that uh, what makes it into the omnibus is truly a random selection of... of, uh, of of topics, right, that, that don't really express our personal interests or, or inclinations. Well, it is from me, but you're a musician. You, you know to play the hits. That's right. You don't, nobody likes to hear somebody at the start of a podcast say, good news, we're going to play some of our uh, new facts now. Well, we joke that, that, uh, that that's not true, but I mean, all of, I mean, there's a vast majority of your shows that are about Presbyter Presbyterian nutritionists or <laughs> Victorian, uh, like butterfly collectors, right? I do like a good Victorian scientist. Yes. Uh, a Victorian amateur scientist. Uh, I like a lot of literary shows, although you did the last poetry entry. So you've been really pandering to the youth too, with all of your, uh, with all of your Teddy Ruxpin yeah. shows. There's nothing the youth like more than beanie babies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what uh, what interests me uh, in particular about about today's topic, the Concordski, is um, as you can imagine, it's an airplane. It's it's about the Cold War, and uh, it sounds like a it's doomed. It's not skiing related, which would be your other thing. It has ski at the end, but there are no actual skis to be found in this. No, where where did that come from? When do you think the first uh, sort of derisive comment made about a Russian thing? 
uh, just appended the the ski to the end of it. Yeah, it's it's definitely post Bolshevik. This is not a Tsarist era trope. Or is that even do that? Do we put skis at the end of things that are mocking the Norwegians? No, I don't think so. I no, think it's... I think it's a very specific and lim- limited use Cold War era thing. Because I don't. Yeah, it kind of comes from. I don't room. even know if it survived into my lifetime. It's really more of a Boris and Natasha era idea yeah, right. of, of the Iron Curtain, right? The Ruski. Yeah, the Ruskies uh, with their uh, with their Plotskis mm-hmm. and their uh, what do they have? Borstski. They're Borstskis. They're intrigue skis. <laughs> uh, well, it's called the Concordski. It's an airplane that resembles uh, the Concorde, uh, uh, the first, rather, I'm sorry, let me let me retract that, not the first. The Concorde being the uh, Western European supersonic passenger jet. The lone commercially successful supersonic passenger jet in history, right? And, and it wasn't even that successful. Well, by su- <laughs> I mean, successful is a relative term. It was not, it was successful only after the governments of the of uh, the UK and France wrote down the hundreds and hundreds of millions of of pounds and francs that were that evaporated during the development of it's the a loss aircraft. leader you know yeah. a lot of people they're going to lose money every time you um you fly on that plane but think of all the other planes you're going to have to pass to get to the back of the airport you know you That's might right. you might uh just spontaneously impulsed by a, a, a Pan Am ticket on the way. I mean, one of the one of the um, one of the selling points of supersonic transport was precisely that although it was always recognized it was going to um, it was going to cost a lot more. Uh, they, these planes were being designed during an era when fuel was cheap, and so although it was going to cost a lot more to run these aircraft. The amount of time, I mean, it, they, they, you would cut a transatlantic flight in half. Are there other expenses they get cut by by only having, to, I guess, I guess salaries? Well, but also you could use a smaller number of planes to make the same oh, number, right. or, or I'm sorry, rather, you know, twice as many trips. So you would only need five planes where you would need 10 uh, otherwise to do the same route. Half as many meals? Half as many meals. I was going to say half as much booze, but that's probably not accurate. Twice as much booze. <laughs> probably. But booze was cheap then, too. But it really, uh, supersonic aircraft seemed like, I mean, unquestionably to um, to sort of central planners and futurists and just the general public in the 1950s, it seemed like advances were being made so quickly in what uh, what constituted the leading edge of aircraft technology that it it seemed implausible that the that the end result wasn't going to be sort of universal faster than sound aircraft because it, as soon as it was possible it seemed like why would you ever go back yeah you wouldn't we would not have believed people then would not have believed if we could go back in time and say the concord will be a fairly short-lived unsuccessful experiment and and if you can put yourself in the mindset of someone in the 1950s um so much of the the prestige of of your country and and in, uh, particularly in the Cold War, the prestige of your preferred economic system was um, kind of tied to your ability to use technology to to push the envelope. Uh, and if you know if your plane was faster, it by uh, 
by necessity meant that your economic system was better and that your social, you know, the social life of your citizens was was better. That's why the British and French governments were subsidizing this. And what we don't uh, often remember in the United States is that the uh, the Soviet Union, although they did not have the first jet-powered passenger jet, that distinction belongs to the de Havilland Comet. And this is the British de Havilland, not the Canadian de Havilland. Okay. Uh, but the, the de Havilland Comet was the first jet airliner, but it was almost immediately grounded because of safety issues. And so the uh, for much of the mid-50s, or rather for a few years in the mid-50s, the only operating jet passenger aircraft was a Russian one called the Tupolev 104. And it was flying commercially. Flying commercially and and uh, and dependably. And when the, you know, the that era where Khrushchev came over and, you know, toured America and the Russians were... Yelled in a test kitchen. Yeah, they were first sort of coming to the West and sort of boisterously parading around. They arrived in Tupolev 104s and there was no, the West had no idea this was coming. Um, so they, they just, they showed up at the beginning of their grand tour in these fully functioning jet powered. And we'd never seen a passenger jet. Well, we'd seen, we'd seen the de Havilland, which, which couldn't cut it. Right. And there wasn't an American one. The Boeing 707 was still a few years off. Uh, and you know, jet aircraft were jet fighter planes were, um, competing against one another. I mean, American versus Russian jet fighters and Chinese fighters in the Korean war and, you know, fighter technology was, um, leaps and bounds. You know, this was where the developments were happening, but all of a sudden the Russians had these, these wonderful jet aircraft. And it really was an early version of the space race, uh, that convinced us we were losing. Uh, well, like, like most, like most of the space race did, right? right. I mean, you know, we, we inched ahead in the, in the final seconds of overtime in 1969, but you know every other landmark of the space race, essentially, the Soviets got there first. And the space race was a was you know the big uh, that was the big game toward the end of the 60s. But really, that it was impractical relative to the practical uh, utility of yes. jet powered aircraft. It's, it's straight up put it on a stamp stuff. Whereas you can base your economy on on passenger jets, right? And your prestige. So in the late 50s, there uh, was already a lot of energy in, in throughout the aircraft manufacturing world to produce the first uh, supersonic jet airliner. Because, like I say, I mean, that, that seemed to be where the future was headed. And it was a technological race that was going to, you know, this was going to be a real feather in your cap. But the problem of developing a supersonic passenger jet it isn't just as simple as put some big engines in an airplane because the closer you get to uh supersonic speed the more and more drag and heat is produced by your airframe and we learned or or aircraft designers had learned in the process of making supersonic fighters that certain wing designs were were more efficient. This is when you start to see the Delta wing fighters where basically the plane looks like an arrowhead. The, uh, uh, yeah, they go back like a triangle. And what, what they're trying to accomplish with a Delta wing is, um, really the, the, the lift surface of a Delta wing is pretty small. The wings, the, the longer your, your wing, the, the longer the wing, the more lift a plane has. Okay. But 
with lift comes drag. And what you want in a supersonic air, aircraft in order to achieve those speeds, um, you want a lot less drag. And you can sacrifice lift because you've got power, right? You put the power behind it. You're already up. Yeah. You get the, the, the wings are small and, and, um, and you, you get that, you get enough speed because you have less drag. But the problem with that, of course, is that um, at slower speeds, at takeoff and landing, you don't have the lift. The, the wing isn't generating lift on takeoff to get the plane in the air and on landing to allow you to slow down enough that you can actually put the plane on the ground and not need a landing strip that's that's as long as the Mojave Desert. And these were engineering problems that were that were very difficult to solve, and there were a lot of attempts made to try and figure out the, this combination of um, wing design and and power plant that would enable a, a plane that could carry multiple passengers to accomplish these feats. Um, and it was discovered over the course of time that you know that. In fact, one of the one of the uh, one of the developments that made it possible was the kind of the discovery that at a certain angle of attack, on the top of these wings, there would be air vortices, like air would would start to spin, kind of that, because that's just an effect of of of, of the no, if if the plane's nose is up as it comes comes in your the the air that's going over the top of the wing will actually start to kind of uh eddy is that bad well it, it you would think except what it actually created was more lift because the air over the top of the wing was you know was uh the air at the under the wing was compressed and the air above the wing was light by right. virtue of its being stirred and this became a design feature uh, the recognition that you could you could do a thing that that on an airplane with uh, with big long wings would create a stall, hmm. but on these delta wing airplanes, it actually created enough lift that you could slow the plane down. Is the flying technique different? Like yes. pilots would have to relearn. Yeah, well, they every aspect of it had to be relearned, and and one of the reasons when you look at a Concorde, when you look at these supersonic jets, and this is true of supersonic bombers too. The reason that you often see them with really long landing gear, right? super long nose gear, and the plane kind of is weirdly shaped or, or sits on the ground in a weird way, it's because that long nose gear is trying to pitch the nose up to actually create that vortice, those vortices on the top of the wing enough to, to generate lift to get it in the air. It, it, they have to have a kind of wheelie stance like a, like a, like a low rider. Doesn't it have like a weird beak too? Well, so the beaks were an attempt to, because of that nose-up attitude, pilots sitting in the pilot seat couldn't see the ground. They couldn't taxi. Oh, I see. And so the-, the That's the, why it, it bends down? Yeah. The extending nose that comes down is just to give pilots on the ground the ability to, to see where they're driving. Which looks ridiculous. It looks it like is. you're flying a big mosquito. And so most of the time, the, the way that we see the Concorde- is with its nose drooping down yeah. because we don't see it in flight. Wah, wah. And as soon as it gets up in the air, that nose comes up and it looks like a, I mean, it just absolutely looks like a bullet. It's a beautiful. Plane. I mean, that's cool that it, that it does a little transformer thing. Yeah. I'd pay extra for that. Other things were, you know, there were other design attempts to figure this stuff out, including the kind of 
uh, foldable wings of like an F-14 or a, a um, an F-111, like these wings. Change that, its angle. Yeah, the angles were wide when they were taking off and landing, and then they could flip back for supersonic flight. You never took the Concorde, right? No, the Concorde was super duper expensive. Yep. I mean, the equivalent of fifteen thousand dollars for a for a ticket. Yeah. Um, even until until the the very end, and that was because, and one of the reasons that supersonic jet planes weren't successful, um, and and it, it's widely understood that that supersonic air travel was um, was commercially unsuccessful because. Those flights were prohibited over land in the United States because of the sonic boom. But really, the the cost of fuel, almost from the day the Concorde uh, flew its first passenger flight, that was peak oil crisis. And all of a sudden, the fact that it used twice as much fuel um, was you know, was made it prohibitively expensive. I mean, that would be true going forward. Oil prices aren't going to come down. Jet fuel prices aren't going to come down much again. So the, well, trend, the trend's not good. It's funny. In the 1980s, fuel prices came all the way back down to, you know, and, and even in the 2000s, I remember periods where we were paying a lot less for gasoline than we are now. I wonder so, if planes will be the, aviation's the last place that all the, you know, so much petroleum product will be used because it's it's going to be the hardest thing to to replace right there's a lot of energy right now going into battery powered aircraft and they seem to be right on the threshold Ooh. of being i mean there are battery powered planes now but they seem on the threshold of being able to uh make commercially viable battery powered flight I think right now what they're trying to do is you use engines to get it up in the air and then batteries right. to... And then the little Prius leaf turns on <laughs> once you're cruising altitude. But but I, I I absolutely expect battery-powered aircraft, you know, in not just in our lifetimes, but in the foreseeable future. The, the problems that were, um, you know, that prohibited supersonic... Uh, passenger jets being like just a matter of more force. Um, they confounded everybody that that was working on this. And during this period, the United States had a lot of uh, people working on supersonic aircraft. The British and the French were working on uh, competing designs. And over the course of the 1960s, in trying to collaborate with certain elements of their designs, they they realized that they um, that there was so much overlap that it made it made economic sense and it was kind of a political uh, it was like it was like marrying the princess to the to the prince of two different you know warring nations. Nowadays, you just marry two uh, jet technologies together. <laughs> it encourages a lasting peace. And it did. It it you know it it uh, their work on the Concorde the the UK and France. It was the only thing that stopped a massive 20th century war between France was, and the UK. It was a wonderful detente, and I think partly, you know, it was it was an era where uh, NATO and the West all were were trying to play, you know, get along with each other. But the Russians recognized that um, that they needed a supersonic aircraft, and as they worked on solving the problem, some of the the technologies that were going to make it actually possible to do were not yet, um, the, those technologies weren't yet in the, 
the in Soviet development quite to the degree that they were in the West. And this was the problem with the space race. At a certain point, as it uh, evolved from brute force rocket engines and um, and just like uh, it being an industrial process as it as it morphed into more and more of a technological process i mean if you look at those rocket engines they're made out of i mean they're they're mostly made made from uh hvac equipment right they're like you needed welders um it's it's basically an aimed target uh, a targeted tire fire exactly whereas increasingly you needed computers to do the calculations and to do the to make the micro adjustments that um that were going to be necessary to make all these complicated systems work in conjunction. And Mandrake, we have a micro adjustment gap. <laughs> and they did. The Soviets were not, were not making the, the computer progress that, um, was the West the aware West was or was this another case where they were like, Oh, what if they're ahead of us on computers too? I mean, this is one of the questions about espionage, right? That how much we were throughout the second half of the cold war aware that there was no, missile gap or technology gap that 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 the the russian missiles although there were a plenitude uh would had no ability to hit their targets wouldn't have worked really at all it really perpet the you know the intelligence community has some skin in the game to perpetuate for sure a scary enemy for sure you want i mean that's how it's just like the olestra scientists you want to uh you want to get that funding because the funding keeps you alive, and what keeps that funding coming is fear and paranoia. You might, you know, six of the guys on your floor might lose a job in the next congressional budget if you say <laughs> none of these missiles actually work. They're all going to land in the Arctic Ocean. But the Tupolev uh, company, which was responsible for the Tu-104 that had been such a such a public relations and actual practical success. Uh, and Tupolev made a lot of bombers, and you know they were a major. Uh, airplane manufacturer. They is that were, what Aerofloat flew for the whole Cold War? Oh, to these Tupolev jets? Yeah, they, they. I mean, they made they made passenger jets and bombers of all of all shapes and sizes. And there were, uh, well, so they were charged with the the um, the task of developing a uh, a supersonic aircraft, and a lot of energy went into it at first. Then the space race kind of overshadowed. Uh, this process. And in the West, you know, you had the, these, um, the governments were funding this research, but ultimately like the, the aircraft themselves were going to be, uh, were going to be operated by private companies or, or by the national airline, but, but that were for profit, right? Air France and, and British Airways, BOAC. Uh, so there was, you know, there there was research and development money that in the on the Russian side kind of got a little bit choked as the '60s wore on, but they they had a good design up to a point, and they realized that they didn't. There were there were aeronautical problems that they couldn't overcome. That they did do a, a typically Soviet um, res- response to the technology problems was to just throw more horsepower at it. Build it anyway. As the, uh, as the Concorde got closer, it got more and more refined. They realized that they were going to have to actually kind of manipulate the shape of the wing slightly to maximize the aerodynamics as the airplane 
flew. And now this is a very commonplace technology. Every airplane in the sky has um, has controls that sort of, you know, can change the the shape of the wing. Is that primarily when you see the flaps come down uh, after takeoff and before landing? Well, or? flaps have always been a part of airplane wings. But no, they actually, you know, they can kind of raise the the leading edge can can kind of change the the tips of the wing in order to increase or reduce lift and drag um if you think about the really high performance aircraft like like uh, american fighter planes now without computers they couldn't fly um cuz they're just constantly doing these little yeah the 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 the, the whole movements. airplane is changing its uh changing actually the shape of the wing and the plane in order to uh, maximize efficiency, but to keep it in the air. And the, the Concorde also would change the air intakes just in the course of flight to kind of, you know, just maximize the performance of the engines. What the, what the Soviets didn't have was uh, engines that had um, engines that were efficient enough to fly at supersonic speeds in uh, in just regular cruising attitude uh, or uh, cruising, what, what would you call it? Just regular operation. Mm-hmm. Most fighter jets go supersonic by using what's called afterburner. They pour a bunch of fuel into the into the basically the exhaust is, of the engine, which is already and light it again. And all of a sudden you've got, I mean, it, it's you got a, a highway to the danger zone. That's it, what you got. It's a huge waste of fuel, but it's the thing that propels the plane that much faster. And the Concorde uses afterburner to get up into the air, but then switches into cruising mode and can cruise at uh, supersonic speeds without afterburner. And the Tupolev, uh, because it didn't have, it wasn't operating with the most efficient sort of wing shape. It didn't have the, it didn't have the kind of <laughs> camber that the, that the other wing did. They're like Avis. They, they try harder. The only way it could stay at supersonic speeds was to be at full afterburner the entire they, time. Wow. And so it burned a ton of gas. Uh, and so its range was much shorter. I wonder what the ride was like. Well, uh, we'll get to that. You take a sip of vodka at the wrong time. So of course, um, of course, the Western version of the plane, the French and the British working in conjunction, you know, they were com- competing with the United States. And we were, Boeing was working on its SST program, but kind of uh, kind of taking a wait and watch approach. And if you think about the 747, the Boeing 747, which was introduced right about the same time, mm-hmm. 1968, the idea of the 747 was that it was going to be primarily a freighter, that it was a big lumbering behemoth, a bohemoth. They didn't think there was a future in passenger flight? One trip of, of Pan Am uh, was, was kind of the big motivator of the 747. Like he wanted a big plane, fill it with people. But as the SST became, you know, as the late 60s, started to show that we were going to be living in this 2001 A Space Odyssey universe where we were all flying around the world supersonically. Yeah. Uh, Boeing thought that this plane was going to be just a, just like a, a big bus. And what, what most people were going to want was to be on these 
hot rod SSTs. Mm-hmm. Boeing spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to build an SST that eventually, as as we'll see, they they decided it wasn't worth pursuing. Partly as a result of of the experience of these supersonic planes, and it turned out that the seven four seven was the most successful airplane of its time, and and filled the gap of filled the gap that these SSTs were supposed to you know, supposed to fill. For decades longer than they thought. Right. Um, but the the Tupolev kind of, uh, again, is a, another milestone uh, where the Soviet Union appeared to be winning the space race. The Tupolev actually flew months before the Concorde and was the first passenger jet to ever achieve supersonic speeds. Uh, in 1969, Four months before the Concorde, uh, it was the first airplane to fly Mach 2, the first passenger jet to fly Mach 2. Before the Concorde? Before the Concorde. We should call the Concorde whatever their Western version of ski was. Yeah, the TU-144 ski. Uh, the two, two, TU-144... I don't know. What's a, what's a suffix that, Jones. that a Russian would use to make fun of us? <laughs> Uh, and it and it threw everyone into a tizzy. It it looks very much like the Concorde because there was a, a certain amount of industrial espionage, espionage happening. Mm. The Soviets had never been shy about industrial espionage. You know, they normally that's something that keeps you away from espionage is just shyness. Shyness. You're like, well, I I would love to know their trade secrets, but I what if they say no? Or... But you know, at the end of the at, at the end of World War II, the the Soviet government actually produced a version of the B-29. Uh, they'd captured a few B-29s. Slightly off-round, like a backwards B-29. <laughs> uh, and they, there were several, like the, the, uh, the iconic big car of the of World War II Russian era was basically a note-for-note copy of the Packard Super 8. Um, they, were, <laughs> they were like notorious, n- notorious copycats. So, and that was why it got called the Concordski. The TU-144 looked very much like the Concorde, but in a lot of ways was a very different airplane. It was um, much longer and much bigger, much faster, much louder. Um, but because they didn't have computer control in the, in, the, um, in the wing structure, it actually had two little what were called mustache canards. So up... <laughs> Right at the right at the front of the airplane, kind of on either side of the the cockpit, there were these two little folding wings that came out and were a whole separate control surface that allowed it to have more lift at slow speeds. This was the problem with both of these aircraft. They because of their delta wing shape, they had to land at really, really kind of dangerously fast speeds. And as you, good brakes. And as you get and, and as they would get slower, they would they would totally lose. They weren't very Steering. controllable, yeah. right? Um, and another one of the technologies that made the Concorde possible was that they developed carbon fiber brakes huh. as a part of the the Concorde development. They could just put one of those uh, parachutes on the back, like they have on race cars. Well, interestingly, the TU one forty four was. Um, one of only a couple of passenger air, airliners that ever had a parachute. 
they did put a parachute. It on was just it. in case, or they'd use it in every landing. No, they used it because it, they, because their landing speed was so fast. I mean, the Concorde already landed at 185 miles. I an mean, hour. the other thing you can do is just require everyone to land in like a thousand foot trough of like uh, marshmallow cream. Yeah, right. But that's expensive. You go through a lot of marshmallow cream. Put foam down every time. Yeah. Um, the uh, the TU 144 uh, also had. You know, the Concorde, you think of it, it has that big, long nose landing gear, but then it has two cl- two clusters of, you know, of of several wheels, I guess probably, what, four wheels each on the, on the main Under landing the gear. But the TU-144, in order to, uh, to create, kind of, because this was, landing at this speed was so bad on, so hard on the tires that they, you know, they built in and they didn't have very excellent tires and they didn't have these carbon fiber brakes. So the landing gear of a T, uh, TU-144 had 12 wheels. Um, just for more friction? Just to, I mean, there was a certain amount of redundancy, like as the wheels oh, yeah. blew out. We know we're going to blow a few of these. <laughs> you but. wanted a few on hand. Uh, but so, so at, I think at first blush, it seemed like the, the Soviet Union was once again leaving the West in its wake. But airplane people recognized uh, right away that the Concordski had sort of rushed to market, and it didn't have the refinement of the Concorde itself. In many ways, uh, I think one of the one of the main ways. No, no seats. Well, there were seats. Everyone but was just velcroed to the ceiling. The seats were like a row of five seats right across the. <laughs> Center of the plane. They hadn't considered aisles. Very uncomfortable. Mandrake, we have an aisle gap. <laughs> and uh, also the Concorde had figured out a way to cycle, actually cycle the fuel of the airplane, which is very cold, mm. through the the through the airframe in order to act as a coolant because the, the body of a supersonic aircraft gets very hot. Oh, yeah. And the Soviets hadn't, hadn't figured that out. And so we're using like... Um, like turbine cooling to try and cool the the aircraft, which was very loud and very ineffective, and it was extremely hot on board the plane. Oh, interesting! Hot and loud. Yeah, uh, because the the engines were already extremely loud. Then they were on full afterburner the entire time, and they had all these these like uh, turbines trying to cool the plane. I guess back, you know, now we associate supersonic jets with that kind of uh, Pan Am 2001 to the moon kind of a thing where it's kind of a luxury flight experience. But I guess, you know, back then, maybe the idea is you're essentially it's the equivalent of a rocket to the moon. Right. And you're excited to just have their... It was, I think, exciting at the very first, but then when... It, when people flying on it realized that you couldn't talk to the person next to you, it Do was you that want loud. Meat or fish? People were actually what? passing notes back and forth. Meat ski <laughs> or fish ski. Uh, so, although the first flight was in 1969, um, none of these planes really were ready for uh, public consumption quite. Yet, but that didn't stop them from flying them. They flew them. They made a lot of tests. Um, another feature that the Tupolev had was that uh, it was the only passenger jet to have ejection seats <laughs> on each seat. But the injection seats only were for the pilot. Oh, I thought you were saying only in first class. <laughs> Which would be, you know, that'd be kind of a bummer to be on a 
on a passenger flight and start to have problems. And <laughs> the pilot can just bail. Pilot punches out. Well, we're uh, having a little trouble up here in the cockpit, folks. So we, uh, Sergey and I, are uh, leaving. <laughs> what if economy comfort had ejection seat, but regular economy didn't? <laughs> well, you know, I'm already paying for economy comfort, so that makes sense to me. Ken, let me tell you about Indeed. Indeed. Indeed knows that for any business, your next step is the most important one. Indeed. Like hiring someone who can make a real impact. Mm, indeed. Indeed helps you find high-impact hires faster without any long-term contracts. Indeed. Ugh. And you pay only for what you need thanks to their super-flexible payment options. So why not take that next step with Indeed? Why not? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get started with a free $75 credit for my first job post and get me in front of more quality candidates. You should do that too. Go to Indeed.com slash Omnibus. That's Indeed.com slash Omnibus. One thing I learned was that, you know, you hear a lot about cracking in airframes. Uh, because they're always... You and I travel in very different circles, I, I understand now. <laughs> they're always... I hear almost nothing about cracking in airframes. They always pull airplanes aside and they check them for cracks. That's one of the okay. things. And, you know, uh, uh, jet aircraft that that pressurize a lot. Um, I mean, every time an airplane, every time a, a passenger jet flies, it it, it pressurizes the, the, um, the passenger cabin so that you There's can breathe regular air. The- and then it depressurizes, and it's why short-distance flights, you know, these shorter jets, 737s or whatever, that make more flights actually have shorter lifespans because th- – It's the number of pressurizations and depressurizations. Yeah, that stresses the, the aircraft a lot more than flying long trips. Staying up. Um, which is why some of those 747s that have been in service since the 1970s are still in service. Whereas- is, that what, is that what happens when suddenly just – the the part of the cabin comes off or yeah. whatever, and yeah. they have to the Hawaiian air jet has to just land open like a convertible. It's like oh, maybe we should have checked that a little more carefully. But but stress fracture is a part of um, aircraft maintenance, and every airplane has a certain number of cracks. They should tell you right. Yeah, there should be a little neon sign like like the number of days since an accident as, on the jetway. It should tell you how many cracks they're up to. How many cracks there are. Uh, the la- on our last inspection, there were only 8,000 cracks in this area. It's aircraft. like Carfax or whatever. You should know whether you're getting into a lemon or not. When they build the frame of an of a aircraft, um, like, for instance, Boeing will put um, basically, like, crack-arresting uh, fins or devices throughout the frame so that when a crack starts, it cracks up into a crack arrester. It, it hits the little firewall. Yeah, and then it doesn't continue cracking. And one of the problems that the TU-144 had is in trying to make a light, um, you know, aluminum aircraft, They uh, there were no crack arresters, and so cracks would start and there would be nothing to impede them. Just, just like a Roadrunner cartoon, it just, yeah. you watch it go the length of the cabin? Just cracking the whole length of it. And so, um, so the Tupolev had had a lot of problems from the beginning. It was, it was, um, it was understood that it was not quite refined, but there was a lot of competition between the Tupolev and the Concorde for, uh, for kind of global bragging rights. And unfortunately that, um, that all came to a head at the 1973 Paris air show. Now the, they've already been flying, uh, both the Concorde and the, uh, the TU-144, 
for several years at this point, but they had yet really to bring them to market. And both the Concorde and the Tupolev were on display at the Paris Air Show. And the Concorde had done a flight, uh, you know, had done a demonstration that had kind of wowed the crowd. And the Tupolev was up the following day, and they were going to give a real, like, knock them dead presentation. And in the course of of doing the flybys, and, you know, I don't know if you've seen the Paris Air Show, a lot of... A lot of uh, what we see of the Paris Air Show, Air Show are all the famous crashes <laughs> right. because it's like, hey, check out our new plane. <laughs> I would try it somewhere else before I took it to Paris. Like, you know, it's like open, open the show in Connecticut, you know? Well, what the pilot did was try and show off. And this is a bad thing for pilots to do, particularly when they're flying aircraft, although that's not always true. Wait, um, it's a bad thing for pilots to predict when they're flying aircraft. But you uh, also think, but you also think it's bad when they're showing off in in, in re- re- regular life. If they're showing off in a bar, like just it's telling fine. a story at a, a long story at a party, or but you know, uh, there's that famous Boeing test pilot that flew the seven hundred seven upside down, and and uh, yeah, he got a promotion. Or he got a promotion, right? <laughs> this was a case where the pilot of the TU one forty four was going to show everybody what it could do, and in. Um, in pulling up a very, you know, kind of a steep climb that that would that uh, people in the know would understand, you know, really stressed the airframe. Uh, He pulled up into a steep climb and it did stress the airframe in that the airframe came apart in midair. Oh, no. And the plane fell to the ground and and, uh, sort of killing everyone. It landed on a little French village and I think killed a lot of people in the village. Wait. That's that's a terrible uh, Paris air show. That would be like the worst one. Yeah, it was really you, bad. You don't want to lose a whole village every time you have an event. The event will soon get canceled. If a whole village died every time they did Sakuracon, yeah, manga conventions would be illegal. If you th- well, you know, God willing. <laughs> if you think about uh, the number of people living in villages around the airport where the Paris air show happens, yeah, yeah, you would think that that would be if you were thinking about moving. I mean, it would depress housing prices, right? There's probably fewer. Now, I mean, what are the odds a plane's going to fall in that same village again? I'd, I'd move there. Is uh, oh, right, interesting. Did the yeah? Did the pilot eject? <laughs> no, they all died. Oh. I'm afraid it's uh, it, that that isn't a very happy story. There aren't a lot of happy stories about the TU-144. I can see why I've never heard of it. Yeah, they brought it. They finally brought it um, into service. Uh, at the end of 1975, but it was only as a, uh, a cargo jet and it only served one route. It flew be- between, uh, between Moscow and Almaty. Kazakhstan? In Kazakhstan. Uh, because it was like a short enough distance. It was far enough away to make it worth it, but, sh- but short enough that the, that you could fly <laughs> a f- full afterburner and have enough fuel. And, and riddle me this, is there any, I mean, I assume the advantage of the Concorde was you get passengers to play, pay a premium price for the convenience of fast arrival. Does that hold for cargo jets at all? I mean, does anybody really care whether the packages get there in three hours or six? Well, you have to wonder within- I'm, I guess a, you could send cake. Within the Soviet economy, who- Right. Who, who is rushing things to Almaty? Yeah. Who care? I mean, who is, who in Almaty wants- the once caviar and gets to have it two hours faster. Is this, was it like DoorDash? Like you want the pizza to still be hot? It's one hundred percent a uh, th- that the Soviets at this point have to put it into regular commercial service because it's a marker of of, right. uh, of the 
the achievements of Marxist Leninism. That's right. They have this. Ha, this is if you're going to make it into the magazines, you have to have it in commercial service. It's just sort of like uh, like if if your car is going to run in the Grand Prix, you have to make a certain number of them. It's true. That is the big. You know, I think we all assume there are flying cars and jetpacks and all kinds of crazy things. They're just experimental, weird prototypes. And if it only existed Epcot, that's the same as not existing. Right. The 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 whole business of like um, supersonic jets not uh, not going into widespread production because the sonic boom affected people in Ames, Iowa. Um, when you think about it, it really uh, that kind of doesn't hold water for a couple of reasons. One, no one on the coasts has ever cared about the experience of people in Ames, Iowa, right? I mean, the, if, if, uh, if people in Nebraska were complaining about sonic booms, who, how would that ever affect what the Air Force or Boeing chose to do? But more importantly, if supersonic aircraft, I mean, why would Qantas or Japan Airlines sure. not be using those aircraft um, well, even a U.S. airline, as long as the flight originates over the coast, just uh, fly out to sea three miles, go supersonic, and then nobody in Nebraska would ever have to hear it again. It's only it's only landlocked to landlocked, right? Well, it, uh, do you keep making sonic booms at multiple times? You during do, the... yeah. The, the Why? Ex- the, well, the 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 airplane um, creates a sonic boom that travels with the airplane. It's a it's an effect of the. Uh, it's a, an effect of the shock wave of the plane going through uh, the air at that speed. Oh, it doesn't. It, once you pass Mach one, you just keep making sonic booms. It's just like you know, as the plane goes by, you hear you hear the boom. They they like the cars, the cars that go boom. Everybody gets a sonic boom. You get a boom, and you get a boom, and you get a boom. Uh, but there's no, I mean, there's no reason. Um, there's no reason why. Uh, supersonic jet aircraft wouldn't have found commercial applications if they were an efficient way of, if they were commercially viable. And really it was fuel costs, but also the the aircraft had to be quite a bit smaller. You know, you could put a hundred people on a, on a SST. You can put, I don't know what, 400 people in a, in one of these Airbus, like, Super cows, whatever they're called. Yeah, um, I mean they're they're inches away from each other, fighting over the armrests, but it's four times as many people. Yeah, and it it ends up being just economies of scale. I personally, I really regret there not being SST flights to to Australia. That of all the places that you want the flight time to be half as long. Um, so what you would get to Australia in ten hours or so less? Oh no, I think less. Right? Isn't it a fourteen hour flight? Did you get there in seven hours? Would it be just as oh, I don't know. easier than going to London? Yeah, maybe. I guess it's um I guess it's Australia to the east coast that is I mean, doesn't that flight push twenty hours? But to the west coast yeah, would be I shorter. So. I mean, you can also really reduce the sonic boom by uh by engineering the shape of the aircraft to glide through the air with the greatest of ease. Or by just playing a constant series of booms in Ames, Iowa, like maybe a big brass band in the, in the bandstand at the center of town. Or have those, uh, th- those speaker systems that, um, that play the boom back at the boom. So it like cancels a, it out. Like a Bose noise canceling exactly uh, SST. Right. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, in the case of the regular flights to Almaty, um, there was, I, I guess a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure to, 
open up passenger flights, if you can imagine... Pressure from the Kremlin, probably. Yeah, if you can imagine being the first passenger on that flight. Uh, it happened in November of 1977. They opened up passenger flights to Almaty from Moscow. Uh, hopefully, I mean, it, I, you can only guess who was on that flight. They limited seating and limited the number of you know VIPs that could be on there because their expectation was that every one of them would crash. Uh, and there was now a second crash in 1978, just three years after, two and a half years after uh, regular service began. Uh, in June of 78, another one crashed, killing all aboard. And so they were taken out of service. Uh, so their whole service lifetime... Um, I mean, that's the same number of 737s, right? So that's, what was it, three? three? Three in order to take them out of service? Yeah, but there were a lot more, a lot more uh, yeah, successful flights. Successful flights, <laughs> right? In the time that they flew, um, they made sixteen of them. They flew one hundred and two co- flights each, all told. Oh, total! Uh, each plane, one hundred each, each plane went about seven or eight times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they carried passengers on fifty-five flights total. Wow! I wonder who will be the last surviving person. Who uh, bought a ticket on a on a Concordski? Yeah, there has to there have to be people in in uh, the Soviet Union. They're like, yeah, I flew on one. I was a high ranking government official, but not high ranking enough that they didn't feel how they could risk my life. <laughs> right, I was an apparatchik, <laughs> but not an apparatsky. Um, the the kind of Soviet industrial espionage um, technology stealing uh, was perhaps during this era on most blatant display with the development of the Soviet Buran space shuttle, which, um, <laughs> let me guess <laughs> it, it, it really warrants its own omnibus, but I'll, I'll put it here instead as a place placeholder. But the Buran is actually, if you put it next to the space shuttle, it's a carbon copy. Um, they looked into the design of the space shuttle. And I think the, they were very worried about the space shuttle in particular because all of the stories that we've heard about the space shuttle, like, oh, the reusability and the, the payload uh, that it offered. When you look at the actual experience of the space shuttle, none of it really makes sense. Like, it's not a good way to put satellites into orbit because you can just put a satellite on top of a Jeep yeah, you're, rocket. You're doing a full rocket launch every time. Yeah. Um, you just throw the satellite up there. You don't need to take it up there in a school bus. Um, the reusability of the thing, uh, it that's not cheaper. It costs so much more money to get the space shuttle in the air in the first place. The fact that you can fly it and land it on an airport and then send it back up is that cheaper than just making Apollo capsules? That was just for TV. Um, and whole, yeah, and the water landings are pretty good on TV too. So. Right. So the whole thing seemed to the Soviets like a real false flag operation. And what the space shuttle would be really good at. Military. Was military use. Yeah. And um, like it's the whole plot of Moonraker <laughs> that you get up there with your space shuttle and capture enemy satellites. You got I mean, lasers. Yeah. There's a lot of, there was a lot of reasons for uh for the USSR to believe that the space shuttle program was a military program. It was because the Canadians put that big claw in it. The claw, That's the Canadian I, claw. I would think it was an enemy too if I saw a big Canadian claw coming at me. So they needed to get their own. We had the, They had a space shuttle gap at that point. And they basically just hook, line, and sinker 
took the space shuttle. The difference being that they kind of did a better job of it. Uh, we use the... Oh, we have the off-brand space shuttle. <laughs> on the space shuttle, we uh, part of what lifts the space shuttle into orbit is the, the engine, the actual... The fuel tank is powering not the, the solid rocket boosters on either side, but actually the 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 main thrusting engine of the space shuttle itself is powering is powered is, from the is launch is, is what's you know a big part of what's getting it into orbit. Yeah, it's true. You see it at launch. You see it lit at launch. Right. Whereas the Russian space shuttle, the Buran, um, it's just using the rockets uh, that it's connected to. The space shuttle itself is mostly a glider, and so it doesn't have all this complexity of it's just an Apollo capsule that can land. Right. It's just it just it's just an airplane, but but they didn't bother with with That seems smart. We why kind of why didn't we do that? Kind of not that bad. Come on, Moonraker. Uh and so they were working on the on the Buron through this whole period. And in fact, one of the last things after they took the TU one forty four out of service, um as a as like a, a passenger jet, they did use it as part of the test. Uh, the test as a as a test platform for the Buran, just like we use this M forty seven. That's right. Well, no, they didn't carry they didn't carry the Buran on it. They actually had a fake seven forty seven to do that. No, they <laughs> used it to um, because it was capable of very high altitude flight. It was capable of this. Very oh, they test, test all flight. the systems. Yeah, they were testing systems, hmm. um, and they uh, you know it was kind of like an astronaut test plane. The Buran, unfortunately, only flew once. And it was an unmanned flight. So they launched it, big space shuttle launch in 1988, but it was uncrewed. It, they had it down to- Was it an accident? They, 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 yeah. they started it remotely and the <laughs> crew's like, like no, 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 we're still at, we're still at mission control. Wait, space shuttle ski. <laughs> uh, no, it was actually kind of a triumph. They, they, uh, they proved the right stuff. Uh, they, they proved yeah. the, the flip side of the right stuff, which was, this can all be done by robot. In Soviet Russia, cosmonauts stay on ground. And it it actually came in and landed like an air an airplane, just like the space shuttle, but it didn't uh but it had nobody on, on board. Autopilot. And then and this was happening in nineteen eighty eight, by the time they were ready to to start uh scaling that project up, the Soviet Union collapsed and um and their space shuttle never flew again. And in fact, I think the surviving one or that one, the one that flew, was destroyed in a in a hangar collapse. So basically destroyed in a tragic hangar accident that also somehow killed like eight people. Just the hangar collapsing. It's like their Universal Studios fire. Yeah. Wow, I didn't, I agree, that should be its own omnibus. Well, too bad. Please disregard all the cool stuff we were saying about the Soviet space shuttle. Maybe five years from now, I'll, your, I'll do the Buran. Give yourself a men in black memory wipe so you can pretend to be surprised. But that did not, uh, that was not actually the end of the Tupolev 144. They went mm-hmm. into mothballs, um, but toward the end of, um, toward the end of the 1990s, um, NASA had a program called the High Speed Research Program, where they were, they were kind of researching stuff that needed to happen at, uh, at, in, at volume in, uh, in an aircraft that's going this fast and they didn't have, uh, a spare Concorde. We had lots of airplanes that could go Mach two, but they were all 
fighter jets. I mean, they too all too small to do the the systems tests they needed to do. Yeah, we didn't have these. Uh, we didn't have supersonic aircraft on hand that were useful to NASA and. And at the at that point in time, all the Concords were in service, flying Phil Collins back and forth across the Atlantic. It was just for Phil Collins. And no one would loan one to NASA. He would often buy out the whole plane just to keep Peter Gabriel off. And at that point, there was, uh, uh, there uh, we didn't exactly have friendly relations with uh, with now the Russian Federation, such that they would just loan us one of their mothballed TU-144s. So a series of shell companies were set up. A woman by the name of Judith DePaul, who is a, a very strange character, very hard to find a lot out about. She has an IMDB page because she was a producer on uh, a few documentaries of, about Philip Mountbatten. And I think there's one she did. She, she helmed... A documentary about Gilbert and Sullivan, your your favorites. Alone. Can't get enough of those witty, witty Britishers. But she she set up a shell company called the IBP, which bought or rented a Tupolev TU-144 from the Russian Federation, and then through a series of like... Like they thought they were just running out for a party or something? No, they knew it was happening, but they needed plausible deniability. Oh, uh, okay. I think it was a thing where... Uh, NASA showed up on the docks with uh, 100,000 gallons of gasoline and the TU-144 was dragged out of mothballs, reconditioned, brought to the Americas. They put new engines in it. Like they did a major rehaul on the aircraft to make it safe to fly. And then, but, you know, only a Russian crew knew how to fly it. There was a period where uh, the Russians were flying the plane, but at the end of the flight, they would not, they weren't able to tell, they weren't able to say what their experiences had been because that wasn't part of their contract. And there was a thing where, wait a minute, we're, the whole reason we're doing this is to figure out what the pilots think. But they were like, oh, sorry, you know, cross our palms. Uh, so there is one pilot, one pilot in the world, a man by the name of Rob Rivers. And of course, American. Yeah, of course. If you're a hot dog pilot, your name is going to be something like Rob Rivers. Sounds like kind of a low rent fake superhero name. But Rob Rivers had had flown uh, in the he'd he'd ridden in uh, flown enough Concords uh, riding in the in the 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 cockpit, kind of doing research, and I think had controlled the flight of the Concorde, uh, and then got drafted into service as the test pilot for the TU-144. He's the only living person to have flown both aircraft, the Concorde and the Tupolev. I wonder which he prefers. Well, he he said that although the um, the Concorde was a more refined aircraft, that the Tupolev had Moxie. Its, its own charms. And it was, <laughs> it you seems, know... Seems very diplomatic, this Rob Rivers. It was like the difference between... You know, driving a Porsche and uh, and a Mack truck, but <laughs> uh, but the the um, the Tupolev had its last flight as late as uh, nineteen ninety nine in June. A lot of the 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 big moments in the Tupolev's life happened in June. Its first flight was in June of sixty nine, 
It crashed in June of 78. Its last flight was June of 99. Maybe they only flew it in summer. They're like, there's no way this thing can make it in That's cold weather. That's probably what it was. It was a summertime plane. It's the only summertime only jet. So Rob Rivers is out there. Uh, I'm sure there are, there are a handful of other people that have survived long enough to recount the tale of flying it. And Judith DePaul also seems to mysterious Mr. Paul still a still a shadowy figure on the on on the fringe Judith if you're listening call us and that concludes Concordski entry 258.je4606 certificate number 36689 in the omnibus uh, futurelings if you would like to write in if you if you are one of the few people that has a first hand experience uh, with the Concord, you can communicate with us in various ways in our era. Uh, send us your Concordski stories uh, to at Omnibus Project on any of various social media platforms. I'm Ken Jennings. I'm at Ken Jennings. You can find uh, at John Roderick on uh, his Patreon. Uh, you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could send us physical mail. If you have, uh, do you think there are toys? Are there toy Concordskis? Send, wow. us, send us a little Soviet diecast Concordsky. I'm sure there are toy burons. There must be tor- toy Concordskis. Sure. What does buron mean? Bear. Oh, uh, of course. Bushel. Bub. Oh, you don't know? No, but I'm going to guess. <laughs> I'm going to guess bear. Just say bear. Right? The Russian bear? The Russian buron? What is it? Uh, it's, a, it's, a rush, it's a wind of Central Asia. Oh. Bringing, bringing sandstorms and summer and blizzards and weird. So it's like naming your uh, naming your high school paper the Zephyr. Yeah, yeah. Or the what are some other winds like that? The Sirocco. The Sirocco. The, That's right. Which was a, a Volkswagen. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh, what was I even saying? Oh yes. Yeah, so, so send us your diecast planes to the Omnibus Project at PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. You don't have to send us. Free stuff, John. John will say you do, but I'll, do I, it. I feel like there are multiple ways to support the show. Send us free stuff. Oh yeah, well, there's a great way to support the show: our Patreon. That's right. You could go to Patreon.com/slash/OmnibusProject and become one of the elite class of uh, Omnibus listeners who can receive a bonus episode every month or other fantastic perks that make you feel uh, special, better than others. Better uh, than others. It's the it's the main reason why people do anything feel like they're getting something that others are missing out on. Uh, and that's what Patreon is for. That's right. That's what religion is for. <laughs> religion and Patreon and uh, and uh, airline medallion status uh-huh. all have the same <laughs> purpose in the end. Uh, if you survive the flight, then you have bragging rights the rest of your life. You can uh, look up your fellow uh, listeners and donors either on the Patreon page or uh, at the Futurelings Hangouts on Facebook and equivalent. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when we still were afraid of supersonic flight, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. When battery-powered, super, super slippery airplanes are finally a thing, where I can fly from here to Perth in four hours, and no one in Tonga is disturbed by the sound. And it's got to be slippery. Then I don't know. Be, we, we, we it's got to be learned. covered in butterfish oil. Mm. <laughs> we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear that would result from supersonic aircraft covered in butterfish oil, 
We hope that catastrophe never comes. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.